If your food ideology, like mine, is really well aligned with where things are going with natural and organic and non-GMO, and it, whoa, it is very rewarding to be at one of these small, fast-growing companies, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I absolutely love it. What's happening, my food marketing people? This is Alex Osterley, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Food Marketing Nerds. On the show today, we have Taylor West, VP of Marketing for Kodiak Cakes. Taylor has a wealth of experience in the food industry. Before making the move into the natural product space, he spent around seven years in marketing for General Mills, learning how the big dogs roll. Taylor just published an incredible article on the state of the food industry in America and what's driving the success behind natural food brands, which we're going to be discussing a little bit more today in the interview. From the world of cost cutting to make shareholders happy to an environment where focusing on the why behind the brand could be all the difference, Taylor offers some amazing insight into what makes natural brands like Kodiak Cakes grow 100% year over year. In today's interview, you'll learn why it can make more sense for the giants in big food to acquire rather than compete with natural products companies, how the switch from big to small food can impact your career, how successful small brands are marketing their products better than the big food companies with huge budgets, and so much more. For anyone in CPG marketing, whether in big food or the natural space, you may want to pause and grab a pen and paper because Taylor offers a ton of great advice that's actionable and practical. You guys ready? Let's get after it. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. So Taylor, thank you so much for being on Food Marketing Nerds. Oh, my pleasure. You have uh, recently published this article. It's it's a really great article published on LinkedIn. I'd highly recommend everyone to go read it. We're going to link it up in the show notes here. You, you're in a unique position to have written such an article. So can you give us a little more context into your background and experience? Yeah. So my background is in both big food and small food. Out of business school, I went to work for General Mills, had a great experience there. Worked there for eight years in a variety of businesses, one of which my favorite role was working in the Small Planet Foods Natural Organic Division, managing the Cascadian Farm and Mira Glen brands in the organic space. And then I left General Mills to go find a smaller, faster growing natural organic company and found Kodiak Cakes out in Utah in Park City. Uh, awesome company, great brand, great product, really neat team, and really epitomizes what's going on in the food industry today, which is big food companies are really struggling, struggling to win, struggling to have relevance. And it's not that their volumes are all tanking, but they're declining just enough to make it really hurt. And the winners in share and growth are coming from these emerging food brands. And, you know, some of them are starting to gain quite a bit of scale, like Chobani and, and Kind and others. But a lot of them are these smaller uh, food companies. And so I, I was looking for a company between 10 and 50 million in revenue that was growing super fast and really just wanted to bring in someone from the food industry that could help them build the right infrastructure, the right strategies and plans and pipeline and, and uh, you know, figure out how to get to that next phase. And Kodiak Cakes was a great fit. I've, I absolutely loved it there. So as I've kind of reflected on my past decade in the food business since leaving business school, I thought, wow, you know, there's, there's a lot of differences going on in the industry today versus a decade ago. And it's kind of a food revolution. There's a lot of uh, upending of traditional business models, traditional brands. And this is, uh, this is really interesting to look back on this past decade, which is probably different than most decades we've seen in the last century in the food business with such rapid disruption and innovation and, you know, categories like Greek yogurt being disrupted uh, faster than, you know, segments we've, we've seen in the past. So it's just a fascinating time to be working in food. 
And a lot of my friends at big food companies have, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking with them as they think about moving on from where they're at and seeking a higher growth experience or seeking an opportunity to, you know, be with a winner and uh, figure out what's the right next career path for them as they think about potentially leaving their current company. I thought, wow, you know, why don't I put together some thoughts and and some reflections and observations on what's going on with this food revolution and how it affects both big companies and small companies and really maybe delve into or at least spark some thoughtful discussion uh, on why on earth are the small companies beating the big dogs? Why can't the big dogs come in and just squash the small little companies or or do what they're doing? And and there's really a lot of reasons for that. And it's, it's really interesting to kind of take a, a big picture look at our industry and figure out you know, why it is kind of like the steel industry was or like some other industries that have had a lot of disruption. And what does that mean for how do we run a business, whether we're at a big food company or a small company? And what does that mean for, you know, our individual career paths on, you know, how are we going to pave our path for the next 10, 20, 30 years of our career? Uh, It's probably a different career path than it was a generation ago. So you mentioned the steel industry. What are the the parallels that you see between this food revolution and the steel industry? Well, you know, famous business school case study on on steel industry and how the big steel companies had such scale. They had such scale and were really working on an older world model of how the manufacturing uh, went and what the demand was. And they kind of ceded market share to these smaller mini mills who were creating different types of products that the bigger mills were not as interested in. And these smaller mini mills had a different manufacturing setup. They were far more agile. And over time, they actually were able to take and steal share from the bigger companies in a pretty substantive way, just because of this slowly evolving uh, disruption on the business model. And I think that same thing is happening with food. And as I've kind of reflected on the main key differences between big food and small food, it has to do with infrastructure. Infrastructure with your manufacturing as well as infrastructure with your corporate hierarchy and how brands are managed. And, you know, the the big companies are built on such scale and everything from a packaging change to a minimum run with your manufacturing to, you know, what your goals are and, uh, you know, how you launch innovation, what your hurdle rates are for volume or for gross margin. I mean, it's a totally different ballgame from small food companies who have a much closer pulse to the consumer. The people that run the small companies actually eat their own product. They are dealing with co-packers and they can change a co-packer at the flip of a coin as long as it's a good one and boom, have access to a completely different manufacturing model as opposed to own capital assets that they've been running for years and are trying to get scale on. And that, you know, smaller minimum runs, more agile for innovation, launching a whole lot more new items. You know, big food companies, when they launch new items, are typically launching them across the country at all their accounts. And so they're paying enormous slotting fees because a lot of accounts charge slotting. Well, a small food company, particularly in the natural organic space, you know, there might be free case fill uh, at a lot of their accounts uh, or in their specific category. So the slotting uh, is not as onerous or their distribution might be more sparse to where they're working with key accounts that don't really require slotting. And so their hurdles for uh, launching a new item, whether it's a slotting uh, or a sales volume target, or a gross margin requirement are, are just a completely different paradigm. And as a result, 
they're able to respond more to consumer demand and to trends and figure out what's working. And the big food companies are just slower. They're, they're slower. They're built on a totally different model. And uh, much like how steel was disrupted and, and how uh, ultimately the big steel companies were, were completely overcome by the mini mills. So what is it in consumer taste that has allowed this this food revolution and just the, the the smaller guy to with new brands without that brand equity yet to actually take on these these huge multi-million dollar companies that have a, a budget to to bury them if they wanted to or if they could yeah you know alex that is the fascinating thing of this of this entire food revolution because for decades the assumption was that if you have a big food brand that has built its equity through tv advertising and everything else then you can easily launch, uh, if there's a new item to be launched in a certain category, it's a benefit to have a big, well-known brand to go into that category and launch that new item as opposed to a lesser-known brand. That assumption has changed, and it's just you know probably in the past decade that this has really blossomed. And the main reason, and I think the, the biggest underpinning in all of food right now, is that consumers have lost faith in big food. And it's kind of the industrial age meeting the information age. As soon as you've got all of these people talking, exposing, you know, what's going on really behind uh, closed doors in food companies, how is food actually made? How does it get to market? How are your cows and chickens and pigs raised? How how is formulation done? What are all these ingredients in the ingredient deck? All of a sudden, people realize, whoa. You know, I, I buy this product at the grocery store, and I think it's just this, this, and this in the ingredients, but actually, there's a whole lot of stuff in there that isn't helping me. It's It might be helping me get a cheaper product, but it's certainly not what I want as a filler in what I'm feeding myself or my kids. And so this this kind of big epiphany of information has really sparked a lot of interest in more natural, organic, local, raw, you know, uh, gluten-free, whatever the, the uh, personal preference is for a trend on on wow, there are different ways to prepare food. There are different ways that might be more premium, that might be cleaner, that might be simpler, or perceived to be so uh, by the consumer based on the positioning of the brand. And so, as a result, you know, big food is is almost a disadvantage uh, with these consumers that that really care and are sensitive uh, to these types of issues like ingredient decks and 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 how your food is prepared uh gmos pesticides th- those kinds of things are, are uh, you know people care a lot more about that now than they do well 20 years ago gmos didn't even exist in food now now they're very prevalent so as people start caring more about this uh then you have the situation where a big brand is is now a liability because they're not trusted they're they care more about you know sweetening their profits and you know putting these filler ingredients in than they do about creating really a quality product that's simple and pure and big companies are trying to respond to that, but it's it's a difficult transition to make. So if it's a, a new item uh, on the shelf or a new brand, it almost sparks intrigue or curiosity from the consumer to say, "Ooh, I'm I'm looking to reevaluate my choice for this cereal or my choice for this, uh, you know, vegetable or my, my my choice for this prepared snack bar." As I reevaluate with a new set of preference criteria. What are the options? Oh, wow, look at these brands I've never heard from or seen before. How do they speak to me? What are they telling me? Is their, What's their purpose for being? What do they stand for? What are their claims? What's their ingredient deck like? And so you've got this major reevaluation 
also coinciding with the millennial generation, which is a generation built on personalization, really kind of rejecting brands or assumptions from from their uh, predecessors and wanting to create something more personalized, more for them. And they're the perfect conduit to fuel this food revolution because they want something that really speaks to how they want it done. And whether it's how food is prepared or how it tastes or how the packaging looks and feels, they're much more willing to abandon a brand that their parents and grandparents have used in order to find something that really speaks to them. So all of this working together, uh, new information, a new generation, cheaper filler uh, processes from big food companies who are trying to make ends meet to their bottom line by cutting costs rather than growing revenue. It's all playing into the hand of small food companies who now have an advantage by being lesser known because they can introduce themselves and they can charge a price premium and people are willing to pay it. They may have a very different setup in what their thresholds are for profit margin because they're probably privately held and they're not a publicly held company with years and years of expectations on on uh, dividends for shareholders. So it's it's really playing into the hands of these small food companies and I, I think is just such an anomaly within our industry over the last century where it's now almost an advantage to be a, a lesser known or new, unique, different brand than a big brand if you're trying to appeal to this premium millennial consumer who wants something better for you with a simple ingredient deck. And, and that's really the trend maker in food right now that's starting to gain quite a, a significant amount of scale as they vote with their wallet. In your opinion, do you think it's possible for these larger companies to, to shift their infrastructure away from, from cost savings and more toward a quality product, simple ingredients, or is it too fragile with the, the scale that they have already in those, those quarterly earning reports that they need to hit? It, it's a tough one, Alex, because of that financial model and the short term versus the long term. That's that's the biggest, I think, mismatch in in the agility of a big company is they have to hit their short term expectations for earnings. If they don't, they get slaughtered. And right now, everyone's kind of afraid of being taken over by 3G or uh, you know, Kraft Heinz uh, with their model of, of uh, slash and burn scorched earth. And so they're, they're very sensitive to making sure they hit their quarterly number. That's, that it's difficult to make those long-term decisions with that kind of a mindset, especially when you know, in those big corporations, their career path is such that they might only be on a business for one to three years. And so they really have a short-term mindset on how do I deliver the numbers in the short term versus how do I build a brand for the long term and the payoff may come three to five years down the road. Well, to small company, it's the same people working on the brand for you know five to 10 or more years. So that's, that's I think, one of the big disadvantages in the beginning. But I think we have seen some big companies really try to pivot. One of the ways they do, obviously, is buying small companies. So they just you know absorb them and try to catch uh, the wave, learn from them, evolve their own model by doing that. Another thing that they're doing is trying to clean up their ingredient decks and things like, you know, Several years ago, it was trans fat. Now it's partially hydrogenated oils. It's artificial colors and flavors. Those, those are some of the ones that are probably the most egregious in terms of consumer backlash, and they're willing to go ahead and swallow the cost impact in order to make those changes. But it's, it, it, I think it's a tough one because at, at its core, people have lost faith in big food in trusting big food, and it's going to be really hard to regain that trust and that faith. It's also hard when you have a big established mainstream brand, and like like let's let's take uh, you know High C or, or something like that. That's you know uh, a relic from the '80s. You know if they were to drastically change a brand like that, 
they're going to d- disrupt their core consumer. They're going to alienate, uh, you know, who they are to their core. Their core consumer happens to be declining, and so they, you know, uh, it probably is wise to think, okay, how do we keep share in our industry? How do we meet the emerging needs that we're not currently meeting today with our with our existing brand? Uh, in that case, it's a lot like the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry, it, they face a pretty tough challenge over the last few decades, which is people are smoking a whole lot less. If your whole business is built on smoking, you're, you're in trouble. You, you need to be built on uh, meeting a, a, a wider consumer uh, need, kind of like in decades past, it was the train companies. You know, you should be thinking about yourself as a transportation company, not necessarily a train company. Because if the consumer demand pivots and it might be slowly at first, but then really drastically and dramatically uh, in the long term, you're going to be in trouble unless you can be really agile and figure out other ways to meet that consumer need. What's the job that the consumer needs to be done? And how can you deploy your resources to do that? I think one of the other themes that, that big food companies uh, hate, uh, they're loath to adopt, is complexity. Because complexity is the enemy to efficiency, which efficiency is is the hero of uh, of cost reductions and and shareholder value complexity is really what our industry is moving toward complexity of brands the proliferation of brands complexity of flavors a, a proliferation of flavors like we've never seen before complexity of claims different claims that people are wanting whether it's allergens or benefits uh, that they're seeking and this type of complexity is such that a big company will have a very difficult time adopting complexity and knowing what's the right complexity to adopt versus what's the wrong complexity to adopt. One example I, I, I like to highlight is Gatorade Organic. I, 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 uh, I, I've often wondered why is there no Gatorade equivalent in the natural organic space because you know uh, people are active lifestyle they they want something to replenish uh, them or on the go or to race or something and there's just this junky high sugar you know artificial color products out there why is there no competitor in this space that's really gained a lot of scale and adoption so Gatorade's come in and said we see a hole in the market we see our consumers are looking for something or, or a portion of our consumers are looking for something like this we might be losing some share over time let's create an offering that can fill that niche. 20 years ago, that's that's the right thing to do. Take a big brand and figure out what the, the where the shifting demand is going and take that brand and provide that offering. But today, when you've got such a split between uh, kind of mainstream conventional uh, brands and consumers and what they're looking for versus more of this natural premium organic uh, type consumer and, and brands, it doesn't always make sense for a big established food brand to kind of go into that space. And I think Gatorade's a perfect example. Gatorade has lost the trust of these consumers that are seeking an organic option. The existing Gatorade users, by and large, are probably not going to want to pay a cost premium to switch to organic. But someone who's shopping at a Whole Foods or someone who is, uh, you know, I want something that's non-GMO, something that's organic, something that's clean, something that's really holistic, they're probably not going to trust the Gatorade brand. They're probably going to trust something that's you know, it feels smaller, feels batch made, feels like it's it's got a story behind it. It's got someone they trust, someone, a, a company with ownership that's not as much geared toward bottom line profits as it is a cause. Uh, you know, and that cause being, wow, we are we are all about nutrition. We are all about 
uh, you know, active lifestyles. We, th- this is what we're about and, and this is why we formulate. We use really expensive ingredients. We're not going to do a ton of fancy marketing because we're going to plow our resources into the quality of the product. That it really is what th- this organic consumer is seeking and wanting and yearning for rather than, oh, I'm so glad Gatorade finally launched an organic. Now I can drink uh, this type of a beverage when I need it. So that's the struggle that these big food companies have. Complexity is what the consumer is demanding. And it might make sense for Gatorade to actually start a new brand and with an authentic story and uh, more premium ingredients, a different philosophy, a different ideology for how to formulate and really sell that into to the consumer. It, it'll be hard since it would be owned by PepsiCo. But are there ways that you can really appeal to that consumer with an offering that is compelling. And that is a tough, tough challenge because when you think about launching a new brand, most new brands fail. Most new businesses fail. You have to have a lot of patience. There's a very long horizon for getting those to to get any critical mass. And that's why big companies have really struggled to launch new brands, particularly in this natural organic space. And so they go out and acquire instead because, boy, there's, there's a high failure rate. And Publicly held companies have a pretty short leash in terms of returns. So, it, it, I, Alex, I think it's a difficult dilemma for big food companies to, to really make that uh, fundamental shift. The best way to probably do it is to create a different business unit that's insulated, has a totally different set of assumptions, a different team. And, you know, you can really give them different uh, setup of resources and people, a different mindset, different consumer intuition, and really arm them with the ability to go. And I, I think you're seeing that with a lot of these acquisitions. It used to be that the big food companies would swallow up a small company and then they would, you know, just fold it right into their traditional business and kind of get rid of all the old people and, and facilities. Now they're acquiring the smaller businesses and just letting them run. And what do you need? Uh, here's some resources. Here's some R&D food science. Here's here's some uh, different manufacturing capabilities. What, what else do you need to kind of fuel and and go? Here's some category insights. Here's, some, here's a sales force. And that new model, I think, is going to be the most successful model for big companies uh, as they try to really penetrate this space because they're not built. Their muscles are not built. Their mentality is not built. Their corporate career pathing is not built, uh, and certainly not their financial model, to have the patience and the long-term vision of what these smaller companies need. It's just, it's going to be a tough balance though, uh, because, you know, those business uh, units and divisions are going to have expectations to deliver certain numbers uh, to the top line and the bottom line of the company, and their scale probably isn't huge, so they might not get prioritized, and they might get overlooked and ignored. I think those are the things that we'll probably see the big companies doing more as an effort to be competitive in, in this new world. Is there data on what the return is for acquiring a natural food brand by a big food company? I, I'm just curious based on the idea of trust potentially being depleted when a company is, is purchased by somebody in big food. Boy, that's a great question, Alex. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, there's there's a couple things going on there. There's how what's the consumer impact to the consumer perception when a when a company is bought by a, a larger food company and how does that brand equity evolve over time and the second thing being all right what kind of return both to top line growth as well as to bottom line profit do those brands need to provide for a bigger company in order to make the cost premium of 2 to 4 times revenue worth it worth the acquisition but I don't, I don't, I don't know of any data that might be available on that. Uh, it would be interesting to see. My intuition would be that the consumer perception, 
a lot of people don't realize how many big companies own these smaller natural and organic brands. I mean, I think Cornucopia has done a great job of showing, wow, of all these brands you think are privately owned that used to be, now well, quite a few of them are owned by these big food companies. So that is a, a, a misconception people have is they already think that these are independently operated. But that's starting to change. I think people are starting to have more awareness that that uh, some of these uh, brands are owned by big food. And that's a great question. How does that impact uh, the, the consumer perception? People like Seth Goldman at Honest Tea and John Foraker at Annie's have been very vocal about the benefits of being owned by a big food company, the scale that they're able to get, the innovation they're able to do, uh, the distribution they're able to get for their products. It's, it's, it's really been a story that they've really tried to uh, present in a positive light. And uh, I, you know, I'm sure there are pros and cons to it. Uh, and maybe the jury's still out on exactly how consumers will perceive those over time. And it probably depends on net-net how are most big food companies going to manage these brands. Over time, will they uh, defer more decentralized autonomy to these brands? Or over time, will they prefer to centralize and take over these brands and kind of ruin them? And I'm sure that's the fear that most consumers have when a big food company comes in and acquires a small one. That would be really interesting to track over time, the consumer uh, perceptions of these brands as they get as they get acquired. And then, wow, what, uh, there's probably a huge variety of top-line and bottom-line growth that uh, these brands are providing, depending on their size and scale and the role that they play and the autonomy that they have uh, within big food. And that data is probably harder to get because – you know, it's it's probably internal data that big food companies aren't willing to share. But yeah, th- those would be two things to to really keep in mind in in this industry on how successful would this strategy be. Now, from a cultural shift standpoint, the the smaller natural foods companies are are poised for success against these these larger beasts that have the infrastructural inertia and just the, the huge size. But from a, a tactics and the different types of strategies that these smaller companies are implementing. Is there anything that that you see smaller natural foods or natural products companies doing more successfully from a marketing standpoint than the larger companies? Oh, for sure. It's, I mean, you look across the, the marketing spectrum and it's almost everything that they're doing really, really well, which is kind of a, a head scratcher because, you know, you think, wow, you know, Big food companies employ really talented people that are well-educated and really go through a lot of rigorous training. Why on earth are they being outmanned from a marketing standpoint by a lot of smaller uh, food companies? And I, I think there are several things to keep in mind. It starts with the product. Of course, marketing starts with the product. What is your product and how are you getting it to market? And the product quality, the simplicity of the ingredients, the uh, the in, the premiumness of the, you know how premium are the ingredients, the the claims that you're making, th- those are things that I think because you have a more top line focused company strategy at, at a small company, you can afford to take a lower margin, gross margin, and and be okay with that uh, because you've got more of a long term top line revenue growth goal in mind. Whereas at a big company, you're thinking top and bottom line all the time, and when you think about launching a new item. Boy, you've probably got a pretty high hurdle rate for what your uh, your gross margin is going to be. So that that is, a, I think, a key difference in product, but the, you know, product quality at least. Innovation, the aggressiveness of innovation from small companies is something they're certainly doing a whole lot better. Where you know they are uh, again might not have the slotting infrastructure, the high hurdle rates. They're innovating a whole lot more. They might be doing exclusives for key customers a whole lot more. They 
uh, they'll throw stuff out there to test and learn. And, uh, you know, they might not have as much. That's part of the way that they get their consumer insights is let's launch several products and see what sticks as opposed to doing a lot of uh, preliminary research like, like big companies do. I, I think the, the main thing from a marketing standpoint that the small companies do better is they are building a brand a whole lot stronger than a big food brand. Because big food, you know, you think 20 years back, big food brands were built on TV advertising, radio advertising, you know, some of the big, huge scale touch points, and how effective is your advertising? What kind of an image, how cool of an image are you giving your brand uh, for how preferred it should be as the leading brand or you know, the challenger brand in, in a given category? Whereas today, it's less about, you know, are you dominating the airwaves? It's more about what do all of your touch points do, whether it's uh, you know, social media, PR, events, et cetera. What, what do they do to tell what your personality is? What's your, what is your ideology as a brand? How do you approach food? What's your philosophy for food? What's the story of the founders? Who runs your brand? Who are the people and the places and the practices behind your brand? Those are, I think, the, the primary questions that the new generation has, the millennials, as they look at these more you know, premium, natural, and organic items. And if those are the questions being asked, the smaller companies will win every time because they typically have a really compelling story and it's the American dream and it, we're, we're plowing in uh, quality into our product and here's the fun we're having in our office and, and, and they stand for something. They stand for, here's the cause of, on which we are built, whether it's a social cause or you know, a, a food philosophy. And, and, and this is the cause that means more to us than, than making a living because we, you know, we make plenty of money to, to pay the bills. We're just you know, having fun out here building this, uh, building this business. That is a super compelling message to consumers that a brand actually cares more about a cause or something that aligns with what the consumer cares about because the consumer does not care at all about the bottom line profit of a brand. They, you know, they care about bigger, higher order stuff. Digital, I think, is another key area that you know, everyone's trying to do digital, big and small, everyone. But the biggest misstep, I think, from a, a big company standpoint, if they look at social media, they're using it much more as a media platform, an advertising platform, than as a social platform. And you know, social, be social, engage in conversations, be an incredible servant to your customers. Use it as a as a relentless customer service arm, and uh, don't just po uh, pummel out a bunch of uh, pretty food photography with a coupon for your brand, and you just use it as a, a almost like a wallpaper, like a digital media banner ad. So I, I think a lot of small companies have have fun with social. Their personality really comes out. You know, they might not be the best at creating a lot of sophisticated content, but maybe that's what the consumer wants is unsophisticated and raw content and really showing behind the scenes who are these people that are that are making this product. And as a result, it's building a really authentic relationship with the consumer. And another thing that small brands tend to do a lot is they tend to build one-to-one -one relationships. And a lot of it is through event marketing. So a small food brand might have a regional uh, area of focus or, you know, starting in one part of the country. And so they're going to do a bunch of races or community events and, and have a, a, a booth there and pass out samples and, you know, create brand ambassadors and then scale up over time as they build their distribution and, and presence across the country. If you're a big food brand and you think about doing a field marketing execution, the amount of impact that you can get to move the dial is so minimal. You'd have to do a massive amount of very costly field marketing in order to really build 
anything worth moving the dial on your bigger established business. But these smaller food companies are willing to, to make this change because they're using it for consumer research. They're using it to spur turns at the few stores that they have because they're doing an event sponsored by that retailer or they're actually in that store sampling right where their product is shelved. So that kind of one-to-one field marketing is really a differentiator for a lot of these small food brands. And then I think the uh, shopper marketing element, I I spent a couple years in in shopper marketing at uh, General Mills and learned a ton on, wow, how how effective marketing touch points can be when you're tying it very close to the point of purchase. But at a big food company, uh, they're starting to get a whole lot more sophisticated on shopper marketing and actually doing a pretty good job at it. A lot of it is tied into big, huge retailer events like uh, a holiday event or a back-to-school event or something like that, whereas a small company they might partner with a retailer to do an exclusive item or to uh, do some digital targeting. A lot of retailers are coming out with some very sophisticated digital targeting capabilities based on their loyalty platforms. That plays into the hand really well of a small food company because, look, I don't need to talk to you know 100% of the people in the store. I need to talk to 5% of the people in the store or, or 18% of the people uh, of, of the shoppers. Let me get them a very high-value offer for a, a free sample or a high-value uh, discount on my item and then boom as long as I've done the targeting right the repeat purchase can be tremendous if you're a big brand you know you probably got a pretty big audience to target with that and it might not be as compelling of an offer to try a a new free uh, you know a1 steak sauce because I've tried that I kind of know what it is but whoa there's this new steak sauce that you know is organic and has this claim or that claim that might appeal to me because of other items I'm buying in the store they know who I am and they know that I might be interested wow that's compelling I go and try it and like it, and then repeat the purchase. So the ability to target a narrow audience really plays into the hands of small food companies who have a, a, a smaller, more narrow audience. So those type of digital capabilities, whether they're retailer targeting or just digital in general through advertising, uh, really can help. I mean, they can help both brands, but certainly they're they're evening the playing field for for small companies. Now, I'm curious, in your opinion, I, it's kind of the the Warren Buffett approach of how he how he says. It's easy to make 10 extra turns when you have a small amount of money or a small amount of sales for a a natural products company. At what point does it start to get more difficult when you are, is it when you're on the verge of hitting critical mass? It's when when you've hit critical mass that these types of of shopper marketing initiatives aren't as effective. Yeah, I uh, certainly there are. And there are limits to the capabilities that different retailers have with shopper marketing, f- for sure. And some of them will play more into the hands of a big food brand, right? Because if there's uh, a big, huge event, like a big holiday event, a, a retailer is probably going to want to stock uh, for premium display in the front of the store a brand that's going to appeal to a wider audience than some small niche brand that really is just not going to turn as fast, right? So it, it can go both ways here from, from an advantage standpoint. And they're, they're, you can cap out pretty fast what, what your capabilities are at a given account if you've done you know, two or three things and you know, there's not that much more that, that you can participate in at your size and your scale. But, but the interesting thing here, I think, is the evolution of shopper marketing and the evolution of digital and the evolution of field and experiential marketing. They are evolving so rapidly uh, everywhere. There's new experiments being drawn up all the time. And that is something that I think small companies are really willing to do. Hey, let's try something new. They, they, they come up, they don't know what the expectations are. They don't always know what the standards are. And so 
and they're willing to test and experiment a lot because they, they just want to get some attention as opposed to a big food company. Yeah, we, they'll experiment a little bit, but uh, you know they, uh, they want to limit the amount of experimentation they do because they really need to drive volume to hit their numbers. Those are a few of the dynamics, I think, that, that also play into this. There's so much changing and evolving and experimentation going on that uh, small companies are probably willing to do more of because they're, they're willing to try stuff, uh, just like they're willing to try new items that, that may not succeed and they might have to replace. They probably have a lower threshold of, of what success metrics are or, or an undefined threshold of what success metrics are. I mean, the amount of rigor that goes into, all right, what is success and what is failure at a big company is tremendously detailed compared to, I think, most small companies, which, yeah, they've got goals and they've got, you know, some aims, but, you know, do we want to grow 50% this year or 65%? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, if, if we're not answering to public shareholders and quarterly earnings, I mean, hey, let's let's try a bunch of things. And, oh, you know, we, we grew 48%. Awesome. It was a great year, you know. Are there any examples recently from Kodiak Cakes that, that you can put your finger on and say that was a really successful marketing tactic that is really only effective as a small brand versus a huge company that could never pull that off. Yeah, there's there's a, a great one that we just did that, it, you know, it's it's interesting. I just we just talked with this guy uh, about kind of social and digital strategy, and and he made a comment that I think is is really genius as it relates to small companies disrupting, and it doesn't have to be food; it can be any industry. You know, small companies will often do things that don't seem scalable because they're not at first. But those are the types of things that lead to scale later and can help build the authenticity of your brand. And here's a perfect example at Kodiak Cakes. There's a member of my team, Allison, who uh, she came up with this awesome idea. You know, we were talking about she's in charge of grassroots marketing. I mean, grassroots marketing, that role doesn't even exist at big food companies. And so I, I, you know, invited her with the challenge of, hey, figure out what can we do to surprise and delight our consumers? You know, we've had a great year. Our brand is doing really well. We've got awesome consumer passion and loyalty. What can we do to really give back and say thank you and, and just, you know, uh, have a strengthen that already uh, strong relationship? So she came up with this. She, you know, was familiar with a video I think a lot of us have seen of WestJet. And WestJet had this video where they showed, uh, you know, asking people before they got on the airplane what they wanted for Christmas. And then by the time they landed, they actually had wrapped gifts of those items for the people. And it was just an emotional, inspirational illustration of a brand giving back and saying thank you and building that relationship that, you know, Delta wouldn't have done that. And so we decided to do something uh, like that. And Allison created this really neat program where we did this survey online to give away a handful of gift baskets that we created for the holidays. And this survey had several questions. What's your favorite Kodiak product? Tell us your story with the brand. What's your favorite outdoor activity? What do you like to do in the kitchen? You know, just uh, to really learn about the uh, what kind of products do you think Kodiak Cake should launch? Uh, really learn about them and give them a chance to kind of voice their uh, their opinions and their story. And and we thought, you know, hey, we, we might get 50 to 100 people to really do this. And then we can go out and uh, one of the questions is, what do you have on your Christmas list this year? Or maybe it's something they need for their kitchen. Or, hey, they have a favorite Kodiak product. Let's give them a bunch of that. So we, we posted this uh, survey. And, hey, five lucky winners will receive a gift basket. We had 800 responses in a wow. very short period of time. 800. Wow. And it was a lengthy survey, too. It, 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 wasn't, uh, it wasn't short and sweet. 
we got a, a massive amount, obviously, of helpful insight into the into our some of our most loyal and passionate consumers on what their story is with the brand. But we also so Allison did the painstaking detail of going through and figuring out, okay, what kind of a gift can we give each of these people? Every single one. And so some of them, you know, as a product or a few of our products, some of them, you know, it was uh, something they needed for their kitchen. They wanted a waffle iron. Boom, we got them a waffle iron. Or, you know, a few of them, we got a KitchenAid mixer that they were seeking. Mm -hmm. Or I need need some some golf balls for Christmas. Great, give you some golf balls. It's our way of saying thank you. We delivered some of them here in our local Utah market in person. And it was, uh, I mean, as you can imagine, what kind of a company does that? You know, uh, there was this one lady who got a Fitbit, and I mean, she became very emotional at the door, just so appreciative of a brand thinking of her and, and saying thank you and giving back. And, you know, the amount of uh, emails we got back in response was just a massive display of gratitude and, and relationship. And I think, you know, similar to Zappos and how they just love their consumers so much and will do bend over backwards to do anything for them, that's, that's what we want to do at Kodiak Cakes. And I think that's what a lot of small companies have that just passionate appreciation for who their consumers are and, and the relationship they have. And it, likewise, the consumers have that appreciation and love and affinity for their for their favorite brand. And so this was, um, you know, we uh, gave them a little Christmas card as part of all these gifts. I mean, several of the people said, oh, Kodiak Cakes should launch Muffin Mix. And we actually happened to be starting shipment on a new line of Muffin Mixes in, in December. And so we uh, shipped those people some samples of our, our new muffin mix. And so it was just a, a, a virtuous cycle of giving back and saying thank you. And we hit 800 or so people. That's not a massive amount of people in, in the country. We had a, on the Christmas card a little hashtag, Kodiak Christmas. Sure, we got a ton of social uh, a buzz and, and attention about that. But it wasn't as much about that or, or just you know trying to tie it to, oh, how many sales are we getting in this next quarter based on that one execution? And is it paying out? It was, uh, and, and it cost us a few thousand dollars to do this, but it, it, it you know, it was, it didn't break the bank. But it, it meant more to what does our brand stand for? What kind of a relationship do we want to have with our consumers? What kind of a legacy do we want to leave with people who are so passionate about our product that they rave to their friend, "Hey, you will never believe what this brand did for me." See this Fitbit right here? Kodiak Cakes gave this to me. See that KitchenAid mixer right there? That was given to me by my favorite pancake mix brand over here. Look at this. They're, they're this local Park City company. And they gave that to me for Christmas one year because, you know, I, uh, I filled out this survey. And, and it, that's the kind of relationship that you create with a friend is you give back. You say thank you. You're generous. And I think big brands have taken advantage of those relationships by, you know, being so self-centered and just giving enough to win business as opposed to, hey, Let's be overtly generous and let's do something that is not super scalable. But over time, this is going to build a legacy of lore that people are going to be talking about for years and future Christmases or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and so I, I think that's one example. That, that would probably never happen at a big food company, but it's something that we did and absolutely loved. And we got our, all our team involved in it and we delivered a gift to a school teacher at her school that her principal helped us uh, organize. And it's just you know, it's just saying thank you and, and really inspiring people to, uh, to know what's possible and what can a small food company do that, that big corporations uh, care, care less about. And I think that's a great idea. And you're building some lifelong fans who are going to advocate for you across every medium. If that's something that your brand wanted to do, but mm-hmm. it was 
potentially cost prohibitive and you're looking at the the cost analysis or what the ROI was going to be on that. Is that even possible to quantify a program like that? I think quantifying programs like that is uh, is very difficult and, and might be a moot point. It, you have to start using a little bit more intuition on what are the right risks and bets that we want to take that we think over time will pay off. And so it's less of a, you know, it used to be brands would have these marketing mix models and they'd say, okay, here are the seven touch points we have in our marketing plan. And based on all the data analysis that our marketing mix partner is doing, here's the ROI on each one of them and what it's contributing. And so we're going to optimize our marketing plan this next year based on that. That model is out the window. Not only do you have such a proliferation of different types of touch points that it messes up the data, but, uh, and makes it hard to read, but you know, it's just, Marketing has always been hard to measure, but you know things like this and things like field and event marketing and even digital marketing and, and a lot of social media that you do and relationship building and social engagements and conversations, a lot of that is very difficult to really tie directly to sales. So you have to figure out, all right, what data do we collect? So in the case of this Surprise and Delight project, all right, how many people are we touching? How many mentions can we read and see? Of, uh, of what's going on. What kind of response are we getting in terms of thank you notes back? Uh, what do we think the overall impact is? And it's probably a lot more of a ambiguous qualitative assessment than it is a quantitative assessment. And I think something like that initiative would fall into the camp of a lot of what brands would consider PR and or earned media which is okay you're gonna do you're gonna probably pay some money to get something started and, and do something cool but you're going to expect and hope that uh, and plan on uh, there being some earned media, some conversations offline that you're, you know, you can't even measure or, or be aware of. And that earned media is going to be very valuable. How much earned media do we think we can get from various touch points and which which are the ones that are most likely to succeed? And and if you try three or four different earned media experiments you know, maybe one or two, if that, are going to actually have some success and get you some critical mass. But they can give you some enormous critical critical mass if they really hit it big. One example with Kodiak Cakes was Shark Tank. A few years ago, Joel and Cameron thought, hey, let's, uh, we, you know, we're, we're growing fast. We love to raise some, some money and, and get some exposure for the brand. Let's try to get on Shark Tank. So they got on Shark Tank. They didn't ultimately do a deal, but they, uh, you know, had a very respectable showing. And the the amount of you know impressions they got out of that was was massive, and uh, you know the the goodwill that it generated toward wow look at these two guys this Park City company, and uh, they're just you know plowing away and and building their little business you know those kind of earned media opportunities not all of them will blossom into a Shark Tank and get you that kind of exposure for a little investment but some of them will you know get some. Uh, uh, a modest amount of earned media and attention and start building your relationship organically over time. And and that is the difficult assessment that I think marketers are going to have to do in, in this new age is figure out, okay, which which bets am I willing to take? How many should I take? How do I measure, uh, if at all, what they're doing? And how do I then adjust over time and, and figure out what, what, what next earned media opportunity do I pursue? Or, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it, though, depends on what does your brand stand for? What's your brand purpose? And what do you care about as a brand? And how do you uh, build a relationship with the consumer based on that? And if you really do that authentically, then over time, you know, it'll pay off and, and start to yield dividends, even if you can't exactly measure it like a, 
marketing mix model of yesteryear. Now, these types of marketing campaigns are something that are definitely uh, smaller companies are more prone to be able to pull off just because it's difficult to justify that to shareholders beforehand. Yes. Um, yes. Kind of along those same lines. And you, you go into this in, in great detail in your article. But when it comes to actually building out a strategy for your distribution and taking a, a small company approach to, to the distribution strategy, what is it about small companies that give them a benefit against these larger companies in, in growing out a, a strategy for setting themselves up for success? You know, I, I think, let me take one of those channels, which would be, well, t- two of them. Uh, the natural channel would be one. The natural channel is a small channel. It is complex. It is expensive. And, uh, you know, the scale that you get in the natural channel, Whole Foods, Sprouts, Co-ops, Independents, it, it's small. And, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, distributors and it, you know, causes a price markup and everything else, but the, it, it's a marketing tool. It, it is, it is a relationship builder with the consumer that goes into that channel seeking to find what are the relevant brands. And so, you know, ha- having the right presence there and some great portfolio depth that might be, you might have, you know, 10 items in, in a Whole Foods versus two items at a Target. Uh, you know, but the fact that they're finding you at, at, at Whole Foods and then, oh, okay, my favorite item is at Target. I'm going to, uh, you know, buy some uh, newer item launches at Whole Foods, but then buy my regular uh, favorite at, at Target when I go there or whatever grocery store people might like. It, it's an important strategic channel from that standpoint. Uh, another one is uh, cache distribution channels. Uh, that is a term that a lot of people use. It's something like an airport or if you're an outdoors brand, an REI or or something like that, or, or maybe if you're a, a, a healthy, better-for-you snack that's geared toward kind of younger adults, maybe it's college campuses. And maybe those distribution channels might not be the most productive for you. Uh, they might not give you a ton of scale, but you're absolutely intercepting your core consumer at a key aperture that, that makes sense to them. Maybe it's a bike, bike shops uh, or running shop if you're you know, uh, geared toward that kind of a, a consumer. And so, uh, or it could be a GNC if you're more of a, uh, um, uh, you know, that type of a consumer as well. And so th- those types of very different distribution channels that aren't your typical, you know, grocery or, or club that uh, the big food brands are focused on, they might actually really help you to build your brand by finding your core audience and then, you know, really translate to, uh, to success in, in some of your other channels. The, the channel that I think is really levels the playing field is e-commerce. And that is one that I know a lot of small natural organic brands are really investing in. So are big, big food brands. And the proliferation of e-commerce options for a consumer, whether it's from a brand website or from Amazon or Walmart or Jet.com or Abe's Market or Thrive Market or Instacart to be delivered to your home, you know, so many different options. This is an area that I think the brands that really invest in and, and do well with e-commerce are going to set themselves up really well for the future because it's it, it's a way to build, ideally, subscription loyalty with consumers. It's, it's a way to build a relationship with uh, consumers, find consumers that are shopping, that want to buy in that channel versus buying in a store. And so it's, it's a way to intercept a new person that has a different model for how to succeed than uh, than walking down an aisle, a very crowded aisle. You can do a lot of marketing touch points via e-commerce, whether it's tying it from your social media or from your website or advertising on an e-commerce platform and really capturing that attention. 
uh, with a key aperture and really linking it to purchase. You can measure a whole lot on e-commerce and really measure the impact and effectiveness of, hey, how well did this social media campaign link up to e-commerce sales? So the metrics, the improvement over time, the targeting of your core consumer. I, I think e-commerce is a channel that uh, s- small brands will really, really be taking advantage of a lot in the future. And it equals the playing field on uh, you know how they can compete with with some of the big food brands. An interesting point that you brought up in your article, especially about the the club channel, is that just having a natural product in the club channel opens you up to potential new swath of advocates and and people who are going to really appreciate the brand. Why is it the club channel is is different in that way versus grocery? Yeah, I think the club channel is the most important channel in food today. It's not as big overall as a channel as grocery. But particularly for a small natural organic emerging brand, Club Channel is definitely the, the, the big animal. And there are a couple reasons for that. If you just think about sampling, just think if you were you know, on shelf and you need to sample at a certain store, big brands or small emerging food brands face a dilemma. Let's say you go into a Whole Foods and sample. You're going to get a very targeted audience, but it's just not going to be a ton of people. It's, it's going to be a, a low-volume amount of people, but that audience is going to be very relevant for whatever product you have stocked in that kind of a store. And then let's say you shift and go to a, uh, a, a – let's say you go to a Walmart. A Walmart is going to be much higher volume than a Whole Foods, tons of people going into that store. But you know, for a natural organic brand, eh, most of those people aren't really going to care about paying a huge premium. Some will, but uh, you know, you just, you're going to have a lot more misses. Club gives you the advantages of both. It's a much higher volume store than even a Walmart is, uh, but it is pretty well aligned with natural and organic preference shoppers, especially Costco, uh, that a Whole Foods might be. And so you're you're combining the two of those. And so if you're sampling, for instance, or you know not sampling and just on the shelf, wow, you've all of a sudden landed a placement in a high traffic, high volume uh, store that is very well aligned with your core shopper. And as a result, I think you've seen club, particularly Costco proportion of uh, business for a lot of these natural and organic brands is a huge, huge customer. Uh, For a lot of them, it's the number one customer. And a lot of these businesses struggle to keep Costco under the 20% that they're supposed to be because uh, it's just such a valuable retailer. And they've got such a great audience. And the volume you can push through a Costco uh, or other club stores is, is just huge. So it's a volatile channel. It's a tricky channel. You can be on rotation and, and then you, know, you, you, you miss a rotation because uh, you're not turning as fast. Or, oh, you get picked up by three or four more Costco regions and oh, your supply chain better be able to react. Uh, or, or something goes wrong and, and they take you out and you kind of miss your, your earnings for the year because uh, you know you lost half your volume. Those are the tricks of uh, the volatility within the channel, but it's such a great channel to be able to find, uh, particularly Costco, find your consumer at scale and really build some awareness. It's you know, demoing, sampling, and doing roadshows in a Costco is another really effective marketing method because you're hitting a ton of people, and the amount of sales that go up when you do those events is is massive. It, it can pay for itself depending on your product and your gross margin. And the marketing exposure you get to building awa- awareness, getting food in people's mouths, driving trial that then translates to more repeat purchase, whether it's back at Costco again or at a grocery store where that you have more assortment, it's enormous. You know, if I were a small natural organic brand, I'd be focused on Costco uh, and the club channel 
to a very heavy degree because of, of that real virtuous alignment of, of all those criteria. Now, whether it's it's the club brand, the natural channel, or grocery, one of the, the things that you mentioned in your article is positioning yourself as a growth partner to really appeal to the to these retail partners. What how can a an emerging natural food brand position themselves in that way? Here's the the tricky setup for a small food company is getting attention from the retail buyer. Re- retail buyers are they're they're stretched thin, they cover tons of different categories, they don't have a lot of time. They tend to concentrate their relationships with manufacturers to the bigger food companies who have most share, lots of capabilities, broad brand exposure across multiple of their categories. And so it just makes sense that, you know, most of their relationships are going to be, they might meet weekly or biweekly with with uh, the big food companies and their sales representatives. And some of these smaller niche players and brands are going to have a really hard time getting the time of day or getting able to pitch a new item or getting, you've got an item or two in and you know, how do I build a promotional plan? I can't even get time with my buyer. They won't even, won't even call me back or email me. The best way to do that is, uh, and the window of opportunity of Aperture is the, the buyer does care about growth. Sure. They care about the volume and, and just maintaining uh, consistency and, and, and talking with the, the biggest players in their, in their category. But usually for a lot of these particularly center store categories, most of the growth is not coming from the big brands. Most of the growth is is going to tend to come from these smaller emerging natural and organic brands. And so you take a, 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 a sleepy category and wow, you know, you may have a brand in there that is driving enormous growth. Like, like Kodiak Cakes at Target is driving double digit category growth at Target and as a result, wow, you know, there, there's, a, there, there's a lot of attention that uh, you can get as a brand with that particular buyer. Or, you know, you might have a small share. You might have a two share at another account. But if you're, if you're driving significant growth, if your brand is growing 80%, your two share might translate into uh, quite a few points of growth for your category. And so that is where the retail buyer can all of a sudden say, you know what? I'm going to have a call with this, with this brand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them in. I'm going to meet with them. And I want to figure out what else they can do to drive more growth. This particularly plays into your hand if you've got items that turn in the top third of your category, because then you can say, hey, you know, all three of my items here are turning in the top of this category. Why not trim some of these bottom turning items from the bigger brands who are over skewed in your category and bring in some more of our items? It's a very compelling argument. And a lot of retail buyers are doing that and experimenting and seeing, whoa, Okay, I've got my stalwart, my uh, you know maybe it's a category captain who's the biggest brand in, in the category, but I'm actually going to start paying a little bit of attention to this smaller emerging brand who's starting to actually turn move the dial in my category or, or has the potential to move the dial or might be moving the dial in my competitive set of retailers in my in my market, and now I'm going to start giving them attention because I want to do the, I want them to do the same for my category at my account, and so that is I think the opportunity that small companies have to compete. Usually they're going to be in a single category or maybe just a couple categories so they don't have the breadth of, hey, we play in 17 categories. We can partner with you strategically and talk with your senior vice president of merchandising at this account and really have a top-to-top discussion. It's not that. That's for a big company. A small company might be, hey, we have a lot of innovation ideas to continue driving this growth in your categories and continue launching top-turning items or well-turning items that are – attract a consumer that you want to walk into your store and you want to keep in your store. You don't want them to leave your store because they aren't finding enough 
of these smaller natural organic premium items. That is the compelling selling point of a small brand to both get attention from the buyer and increase their distribution. And it's playing out really well for, for a lot of brands if they can really uh, capture the buyer in the right frame of mind. We're coming up on an hour here, but I definitely want to hit more on your career path and how you've kind of, uh, you've seen the industry mature. For someone who is considering making the switch between big food and uh, the emerging natural products industry, how have you seen, I guess, how, how is the, the risk of joining a smaller company mitigated by the upward trend of the industry in general? Yeah, well, it's, it, I mean, it's definitely a risk when you go to a smaller company, there's going to be uh, less established, you know, practices and systems and processes, less, you know, talent, uh, career path. I, I think small companies don't always understand what career paths are in big CPG and understand what's the difference between someone with four years and eight years experience on a certain functional area and what, you know, what is the different skill set they bring to the table. So, you know, you got to be a little careful of um, going to the right size company, the right team, the right place where, you know, your skill set is appreciated and, and will be leveraged, as well as, you know, there are some losers out there in small food and uh, or some that are peaking and kind of tabling off or stagnant or or some that uh, there's a wide variety, a, a, a huge diversity of types of companies out there, how they're run management wise. And so that is that that's the caution that, you know, anyone needs to have as they, you know, think about leaving a big food company and going small. But I'll say it sure is pretty exciting to be working for a company that's growing 100% a year, multiple years uh, in a row, as opposed to a company that, you know, their goal is, you know, or a division or brand, their goal is to decline only 4%, you know, and they haven't hit their goal in several years. That is a big difference, a a huge difference in um, morale, a huge difference in excitement and growth. And and for certain individuals, certainly uh, this applies to me. I'm built like an entrepreneur. My dad's been an entrepreneur his whole life. I, I've always known that's kind of the area for me to play and 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 thrive in and, and really enjoy my day to day. But I loved my experience at a big uh, food company and learned a ton and, and wouldn't have traded it for anything because it helped me refine my skill set and, and, and teach me a ton. But it, the agility, the the freedom, the autonomy, the, the the ability to do so many different things without trying to break down barriers of people telling you we've tried that before and it didn't work or you've got these 17 processes you have to do or a packaging change takes this amount of time and this much money or, you know all, all of those things it's just hey you, you say why not as opposed to are you sure and and how are you going to do that and it, it's a it, it totally different paradigm that's pretty exciting for someone that's proactive that's growth oriented and that wants to go out and have a, a different type of experience in their career. And it's not as much about moving up the hierarchical chain of leadership because at a small company, you know, there just aren't that many roles to move up in. And so it's it's less about that. That's more of a big company thing where you're like, okay, two years to my next promotion. And then you know I need to make sure I have the right political relationships with these key decision makers so I can keep moving up. And, you know, some people love that and thrive on that and, and, and want to be at a big company that has that kind of a, a career path and expectation. It's very unpredictable on, on how small companies will grow and, and what that career path is, as well as what is the team ultimately going to be like over time as, as we grow. How are they going to adjust to different phases of growth? And how are they going to respond to adopting different processes and systems and rigor and data and, and the things that you need to continue building your business and making it very professional as opposed to more of a hobby business? 
Uh, those are all risks and uncertainties. But boy, if you if you're built like an entrepreneur and you're excited about growth and you want to be on the front lines of the food revolution, if your food ideology like mine is really well aligned with where things are going with natural and organic and non-GMO and it, whoa, it is it is very rewarding uh, to be at one of these small, fast-growing companies. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I absolutely love it. It's just speaking from personal experience. Is there anything that you know now that you wish you had known? going from a large company to a small company or that would have helped you in your experience yeah there's a lot of things <laughs> when you're in a totally different environment you realize oh my goodness i learned a lot in my past experience i wish i might have paid attention to x y or z too uh, a little bit more closely i have relied on my network a ton to ask questions and figure out how did you do this because you know, there's tons of people that I know that went through a similar career path that have done big and now we're doing small and they're facing kind of the, the same questions of all right instead of managing a team or having a bunch of peers that are kind of I'm kind of coordinating the execution for this I actually have to be the executor on a lot of this stuff uh, things like all right how do I how do we do this consumer research? Who are the vendors? Who who are the vendors for our brand design? We need to kick that off. I used to have a brand design team, and and so that's just been it's not a major adjustment, but you start you have to start being willing to to carry the ball on all that stuff as opposed to having a team to do it. And so I've had to tap into my network a lot to to say, hey, who are some great design agencies that you guys have worked with as we think about you know doing some design work? Or wow, what are some great capabilities for consumer insights that our consumer insights team used to manage and, and run? And now you know I, I'm in charge of, of finding those uh, capabilities and resources and partners and and you know not a major hurdle if you've got a well developed network. But I'll say if someone is thinking about leaving big food and going small, really make sure you've got a strong network and you can tap into people and. And ask those questions and build those uh, relationships of trust that you can, you know, get feedback and ideas and and uh, referrals for because you're going to need it. Recruiting as well. I mean, you're going to tap into your network for recruiting talent to join you. I'm grateful that I had a, a really good, well-built network uh, from my prior uh, experience, and and I'd say that would be the number one consideration: is how do you continue to maintain that and tap into it uh, as you have questions pop up over time that you you don't know exactly. You kind of have an idea for how to solve, but you kind of need some pointers from someone that might have a little stronger expertise specifically. Well, one last question that I ask all of our guests, are there any books or resources that you have read that have really influenced the way you think about food marketing or just entrepreneurship and how you approach your job? Yeah, my first year in big food, I read Omnivore's Dilemma. <laughs> it was kind of the beginning of the end for my naivete in food. Uh, I the, One of the follow-up books from Michael Pollan, In Defense of Food, I think is the best book I've ever read on food. It really helps expose the ideology of nutritionism and how you know, that's changing how people really understand health and nutrition, even you know health professionals. So I'd say if, if any food professional has not read In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan, it would be a must read in, in my opinion. There are lots of other books, just general business and, and marketing, whether it's that I've read recently, The Power of Habit, Grit, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, I think is so crucial to how do you, okay, you've got a ton of priorities you're trying to tackle. How do you really focus on the biggest ones that are going to move the dial and not be distracted by the smaller ones? It's not an industry specific book. It's more of a general personal development book, but it's, it's probably the best book I've read in the last two or three years on how do I, ref, you know, get better at my job and really focus on the right things to move the dial. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I highly recommend everyone go and check out this article. It is extremely comprehensive and it explains so much in such great detail. So 
How can people find out more or go and actually read this article? Yeah, just go to my LinkedIn page, Taylor West, and it uh, will be there in LinkedIn Publishing. Perfect. We'll, we'll link it up in the show notes to make it easy for everybody. Great. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been a fun chat. Thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.